When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters community membership, and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Today's guest is one of Britain's best-loved novelists, Lisa Jewell. Her career started with a smash hit debut novel, Ralph's Party, which she started writing as a bet at the age of 27, while she was unemployed and, according to her, totally lacking in direction and ambition. It was the book of the moment, and for 14 novels, it looked like her career, although ticking along nicely, would never hit those heights again. Then her writing took a turn for the dark, and her career took a turn for the stratospheric. Lisa Jewell, it transpired, had a knack for a killer twist. That knack propelled her to the top of the bestseller lists on both sides of the Atlantic with And Then She Was Gone. That was six books ago and she's never been more successful. To be relevant, suddenly relevant in my 50s um, is just not something I would have ever expected and is absolutely extraordinary and I'm so grateful. I went to meet Lisa in her envy-inducing North London home to talk about her latest book, The Family Remains, the debt she owes Bridget Jones, her unexpectedly scary menopause symptoms, testosterone overload, and her extremely proactive ovaries. Plus, she shares her controversial secret to successfully parenting teenage girls. I need to say, because it's a bit of a novelty for me to be in a house with a person, because everything's been Zoom for so long. So I just have to say, Lisa has the most spectacular house. (laughs) 
It's gorgeous. I've got massive house sandals, and I'm looking out the window onto. Is it like one of those like Notting Hill parks out? It's a, a, it garden? is a communal garden. Yes, it's two acres. It goes all the way. It, the, the other end is up by, Finch, by Finchley Road, basically, which is quite hard what, to imagine. By Waitrose. Yes, yeah. Finchley Road is like this massive like arterial road straight into London, full of buses and. Yeah, pollution it's and what have you. Different but here we are. Here. You wouldn't know it with this two acres of weeping willows and what have you. So would that be the communal garden and the girls? This is. Well, it's it's inspiration. Inspired, yes. It was inspired by this garden, the one in the girls, yes. I mean there are many interesting things about your career, but one of the most interesting things is how you were like one of those annoying, phenomenally successful debut authors, like straight up the top. Bang! And then you Let's say plateaued, but you plateaued in a place that most authors would be really, really, really happy to plateau. And now you're like stellar. Yeah. So let's start by telling me about the start. Right. Because you weren't like you weren't like a university kid and all of that, were you? Yeah, I was a very, very unlikely successful debut novelist or novelist full stop. In fact, I'd always been good at writing, but I certainly wasn't ambitious and I wasn't studious. And I didn't have any goals in life. And um, so I left school at 16 and went off and did art foundation course at my local college. And then I went off after that and did fashion promotion and communication at an art school in Epsom, um, which is... Did you? Yeah. (laughs) Which is... You wanted to be a fashion PR? I didn't want to be anything. I just had to do something because everybody else was doing something and I didn't know what I wanted to be. I had no clue. Um, so I spent four years doing these sort of random arty things and then ended up working for a warehouse, the High Street Fashion Retailer. Oh, did you? In their head office. I worked in their pattern room for a few years. And then, yeah, so at the time that I started writing my first novel, I was 27 and I was, after a short period of unemployment, working as a receptionist at a firm of shirt makers in their head office in Battersea. And yeah, so that's where I was at when I started so writing, writing my first novel. you were meant to be receptioning? Right, so the only sort of sign that I might have been about to write a novel at that point in my life as a receptionist in my mid-twenties was that I'd done this um, evening classes uh, in creative writing at the Working Men's College in Camden for fun. It was just fun. And I did do that a bit at work because obviously you're sitting there behind your desk with a computer screen in front of you and you could be doing anything really as long as you answer the phone when it rings so yes I did do my homework from that course at work and then I had this incredibly serendipitous conversation with a girlfriend um, on holiday in 1995 I think or 96 about this crazy dream I had of writing a novel one day and in my head I'd always thought well if I do it I'll have to you know I'm what am I I'm 26 I'm a receptionist I've had no life experience really it's the sort of thing that you do when you're middle-aged so I'd kind of put it over there as a I'll do that when I'm middle-aged and thankfully this friend I had the conversation with said no do it now do it now particularly I, I just lost that job as well so I was um I didn't have a job um, to go to um after the holiday that we were on and so she persuaded me to to give it a bash there and then at the tender age with no life experience and I wrote those three chapters just to keep her happy and those were the first three chapters of Rouse Party. So the whole thing was just incredibly unlikely. Nobody who knew me at any point in my short life at that point would have said, oh yeah, you know, you can tell she's on a trajectory to success, (laughs) (laughs) literary success. You didn't have like an in, you didn't like know the right people, you didn't have a mum or dad who knew people, it was like... (laughs) 
I mean, that was a bit less... Well, I was going to say it's a bit less common when we were 20, but it kind of wasn't, because once I got to London, I just discovered everybody had been to Oxbridge. I didn't even know what Oxbridge was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you not go to university? I did go to but university. You d- but you did Birmingham. But I oh, you went to Birmingham. Okay, right. But yeah. I didn't know what all that kind of Oxbridge was. And it's an, it's an extraordinary percentage of the um, authors that I know did actually go to Oxbridge, um... Yeah, it does seem slightly disproportionate. So no, I didn't know anybody in publishing um, that I found my agent by buying the Writers and Artists Yearbook yeah. and flicking through it and sort of underlight highlighting the ones that I thought might be worth giving a bash. And I sent those three chapters out to ten uh, agents that I found in that book and got nine rejection letters, which was fine because I genuinely, genuinely at that point did not think this was a serious undertaking I didn't actually think I was writing a novel. I thought I'd just written these three chapters to keep my friend happy. Um, and it all sort of it all sort of started at the point at which the 10th letter arrived and it was an agent saying that she'd be prepared to take it on. And that's when I wrote it. So no, I didn't know anyone. I had no contacts. Yeah, I was just sort of... The, the world in which I lived didn't contain lots of incredibly influential and powerful people no. who worked in publishing and have been to Oxbridge at that point. So no, it was, it was it was all incredibly unlikely and incredibly magical and a bit of a fairy tale, really. So you wrote Ralph's Party and then you wrote eight, nine, in the same sort of vein? Yes. We can call it Chicklet, just for... I don't like that. It's nice. It's though. Commercial yeah. women's fiction. I don't even yeah. like that, though. Do you know what my favourite ever um, term that, I, that somebody used to describe my books was pop fiction? And I loved pop that. Pop fiction, yeah. I liked pop fiction, yeah. but it never took off and nobody ever referred to it as pop fiction. It was all ladlit and chicklit and all these really annoying... But what you wrote, really, with Ralph's Party was the equivalent of what lots of young women are doing now that's getting published, like... Like Luster, like What a Shame, like Send Nudes, you know, it was the equivalent at the time. And I don't know, thank God, but I don't see anybody calling no. those books chiclet or denigrating them no. in the way that... That's know, such a good point. And the covers, the way they're published, they're published in such a like cool... Like books. Yeah. Like they, you <laughs> know, they're, they're beautiful to look at and they look like they're worthy of being held in your hands and touched and opened and read. Whereas the way they published those books back in the noughties with these awful pastel tacky cartoon covers that look like children's books, the whole yeah. package, the whole way that it was sold into the world was it I just it was, I mean they sold very well these books but I don't I think it was a bit demeaning really yeah well it's like there's an acceptance now for whatever reason that those books might have something to say yes you know, yes exactly Sally Rooney for instance I mean yeah. nobody's saying that Sally Rooney is anything other than a really good writer yes and it's not really any different She's a writer so what, a of her moment, of and she's, she's yeah. you know, she's sort of journaling, in a way, what it's like to be that age at this time, and, and I, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly that's what, what I was did. doing back in the noughties uh, and late nineties. It was just, this is what it's like being 27 years old and living in London at the tail end of the nineties, this is what it's like. Um, so yes, I think, I think you're right, and it's a weird shift, isn't it? And that, yeah, and that was the other thing. It was like a feeding frenzy at the time. I mean, the publishers back in the, in the early noughties were just throwing money at young women who they thought might be able to recreate this sort of zeitgeisty um, thing, which I don't think is happening so much now. I think there's much more cherry-picking going on. 
<laughs> the hunt for the next Sally Rooney, and about yeah, back then it was the the hunt for the the new the new Helen Fielding or the whatever oh, it was. God, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh God, I mean, this all comes from Bridget Jones. If I'd written my first novel without Bridget Jones ever having been created, I doubt I would have got it published. It was all born from that seed, which, um, thank you, Helen Fielding. <laughs> in a way, it's, I don't know whether this is the right comparison to make, but in a way, it's a bit like the very first sex, the collection of the Sex and the City columns. Yes. Yeah. The first Bridget Jones book in particular. Those books absolutely nailed. Mm-hmm what it was like to be a certain sort of woman at a certain time. Yes. But there's still, I mean, I still feel like, despite the fact that Bridget Jones did have like a 25-year programme on BBC Two, there's still a sense that it's a little bit over there. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. It's not Ian McEwan, is it? No. It's, um, yeah, it is. As they all are, I'm afraid, commercial women's fiction always suffers from this, um, and I guess it always will. It's like, so you basically wrote eight, nine... How many have you written now? Nearly 20 books? I'm just coming up to the end of writing my 21st, so, yeah, and about to publish my 20th, so... So there was about ten in this vein, in the vein-ish of... I would say seven. I would say... You know better than me. Yeah, I think I shifted gear round book eight, which I think was The Truth About Melody Brown which was the first book that I wrote where, in fact, I started writing it assuming that it would have a romance at its core or a relationship at its core. And I introduced a male and female character to each other in the early chapters. And then about a quarter of the way through, I just thought, this guy is superfluous to the story. He doesn't need <laughs> to be here. He's almost getting in the way. Um, so I just sort of cut that relationship off. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Very nice, man. You're very nice. And maybe we'll have you back in the last chapters, but she needs to get on with this by herself. Um, and yes, so that was, I think, a massive turning point for me. And with everything in my writing, every shift I've made, every um, movement I've made away from one genre and, and towards another has been in increments, book by book, and always waiting, in a way, for someone to say, oh, I didn't like it when you did that, or I preferred what you were doing before, or just suggesting that my evolution as a writer wasn't positive and wasn't good, but that never happened, which was amazing for me because it meant that I could just keep doing it with every book. I could just think, okay, what have I, what can I do that I haven't done before? Or what can I bin that I've actually sort of outgrown writing about um, and keep reading and keep growing and my publishers and my readers coming along with me and letting me do it and and I know how fortunate that is because I know a lot of writers have actually had to bin their writing names and take on pseudonyms and, yeah. you know, uh, or go to another publisher to write in a different genre um, and start afresh. So the fact that I've been able to just very slowly, without anybody really noticing, just sort of keep moving along, moving along. Um, and now there's obviously there's commonality between Ralph's Party and The Family Remains in terms of my voice, but... In any other respect, there's just nothing to tie the two books together. It's a completely different type it, of book. It's really weird, isn't it? Because when you look at them, I mean, obviously it's packaging as well. And they almost could not even be written by yeah. the same person. There's such a big leap between... Although maybe not quite so much Family Remains, because whilst Family Remains is, it is still a th- psychological thriller, it's about the family. It is. It is, and as it was written as a sequel to a book that ended on some very dark notes, 
and with some very dark loose ends that needed tying up I very much felt that it was my job with the sequel to tie up those loose ends and give people some happy endings and some redemption which is kind of going back to the sorts of books I was writing slightly earlier in my career is I was always with my earlier books um, heading for that happy ending had to have a happy ending um, which is something I've been able to sort of get rid of yes get rid of over the last few books it doesn't matter if that person's still sort the joy joy, yes and yes so I think you're right in a way that there may be those more commonality between The Family Remains and Rouse Party than my other thrillers because of that sort of having to tie it all up at the end so we're psychological the move into I don't they're not really psychological thrillers I've seen you compared to Barbara Vine, more than Ruth Renzel. Yes. And you have become the kind of author that has books written about your work, Lisa Jones. Well, I don't know if I've become the type of author, yeah, but someone perceived me as a type of author. I am holding a, a book called a The single... Truth About Lisa Jewell, <laughs> and an academic followed you for an entire year yes. to follow your writing process, yes. which as a writer was really fascinating. But I actually do think, and I'm not saying this because anybody's given me any money, <laughs> I do think that... If you're a fan of Lisa Jewell, you'll find this book absolutely fascinating. And as you said before we started recording, it is as readable. I mean, not really quite as readable as Lisa Jewell, but it's really readable. I mean, like a shot it's through a quick read. underlining things yeah. and scribbling. And Jim, angry after the party. <laughs> Let's do that first, actually, before we talk about how you became Lisa Jewell in like casual <laughs> letters with exclamation mark. Let's talk about after the party because... I think it was quite unique in that it was a really angry book. That's a very... Well, you've read that book, written, so you know something in the background that to that. Yeah, but book. I do, but they don't. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, God, this was, this was my greatest misstep, personally, I feel, as a writer. I was at my previous publisher, Penguin, and having been there... You know, their golden debut star author and had that experience. I could just tell that the sales were going down and they weren't building me. And it didn't seem to have a sense of excitement anymore about my books. And I kind of wanted to get the love back a bit. And in a, in a meeting, I stupidly said, I said something that I'd been thinking of vaguely, but I hadn't actually decided I wanted to do it. I said, it's the 10th anniversary of Ralph's party coming up. I could write a sequel. Maybe. Oh my God. Oh, yeah, schoolgirl error. Schoolgirl error, and of course, the minute I said that, they were yes, do that, do that, absolutely do that. And the minute they said yes, do that, I thought, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> I actually don't want to write the sequel to Rouse Party, but it was too late by then. I'd said it; it was out, and I had to do it. And this was at the point in my own life where I had a baby and a toddler, and issues with my marriage um, to the father of that baby and that toddler. And I thought, okay, what I can do is maybe take Ralph and Jen from Ralph's party and use them to explore some of these issues I'm currently dealing with and make it sort of a sort of a big roar of a book about what it's like when your partner lets you become a housewife and where you've tr- you're trying to you know, balance everything out but everything comes back to you ultimately as the woman and as the mother and all that resentment that builds up in um, marriages at this point in the uh, the, chi- the, the, the child rearing years um, I thought I'm just going to do that I'm going to do that I'm going to make it that so how old were you then late oh, late 30s so I had my second child when I was 38 so let's assume I was yeah late 30s possibly pushing 40 um and it's a weird book and I didn't quite know 
what I was doing with it, but I knew that I was getting a lot of my feelings and a lot of my um, emotions and a lot of anecdotal stuff in there. I was sliding a lot of anecdotal stuff in there about resentment and what have you. Um, and then I gave it to my editor at the time, who was also had young, very young children and a husband who, I don't know if she hated him, but um, <laughs> but I assumed she did because we all hated our husbands at that point. Um, and expected her to sort of say, wow, this is so raw. This is so real. You know, female readers are going to absolutely love this. But she went Team Ralph. It wasn't your brand. Oh, she went Team Ralph. Yeah. She was like, Joy comes, uh, Joy, um, Jen comes across as um, very hard to relate to. She comes quite unlikable. Um, and she went through and, and toned down every single angry, furious, raging, roaring, resentment filled thought that Jem had and made me just take all of that out of it um so it's interesting that you think it was still an angry book yeah I do think it was still angry but I can see what you mean I can see that it's more suppressed suppressed yes I think it's it's interesting because what we were talking about earlier about you know books by older Gen Z young millennial women they're allowed to be angry yes I mean, I think we're all allowed to write angrier books with less likeable characters than we used to be. Yeah. But I wonder now whether you would have really been able to write the book you wanted to write. Yeah. And tell the truth about, you know, being the one stuck with all the childcare. Or just how, you know, I am a congenitally lazy, filthy slattern by (laughs) nature. That is how, left to my own devices, if nobody ever... I have a cleaner. She yeah, has yeah. I tidied no up for you. I here. absolutely tidied up for you, I can assure you. Um, yeah, so left to my own devices, that's probably how I would live. If nobody ever came to my house and I lived alone, I would live in squalor. But you can't do that when you're, you know, you've got family and, and children and what have you. And it was, it was that sort of fury at the fact that if somebody has to take on the housewife role, it has to be the woman. Um, and then you become the woman who's nagging and, 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 you know, sort of getting cross about things being left out. And you don't, I'm not that person, but somebody has to be that person. And I think that's, that really tipped me over during those years of like, okay, I have to make these people inside my body and then push them out and then feed them from my body. And I have to keep them clean. And I have to also pay for everything as I was um, the main breadwinner. Um, and also worry about the fact my husband doesn't think he's getting enough sex and, you know, just the whole kit and caboodle. And, and, that, and, and, and Couldn't and, have been further down your list of priorities. Just, just, I right. mean, I could tell you some things, um, but okay. <laughs> anyway, I shan't. Um, oh, damn. Yeah, and just that awful feeling of like, oh my God, I'm a housewife. I was never put, I never was put on this earth to be a housewife. This isn't who I am, but I haven't got any choice in that. Was that your first marriage or your second? No, no, this is the, yes. Now my first marriage was like a starter marriage in my early 20s. It was all over by the time I was 25. Um, so no, this is the now marriage, which is actually fine now. Oh, yes. so it's, you're still married, so it's... Oh yeah, oh, oh. I made it sound like we must absolutely have got a, I was a thinking divorce after I missed, that. No. I missed a marriage in there. No, yeah. no, no. There were no, no children involved in the first first marriage um no this is so you got through it 
Oh, yeah. So I'm just really interested in that kind of 40s yeah. thing. At what point did you start to come out of it, or did you then go into... Did you go into menopause at the point when you had teenage daughters and it all... Or what was the process? Well, for me, it has absolutely been... Because not only am I not a natural housewife, I'm not a natural mother. I am a natural mother. I'm a brilliant mother. Um, but I don't like babies and children. I liked yeah. my babies and my children, but I don't actually like them. And at every point in their development, I would, rather than weeping over the things I'd lost and, you know, oh, I, I don't read bedtime stories for my child anymore. I'm like, yay, I don't have to read them bedside bedtime stories. Or, oh, I really miss sitting in the bathroom with them and, like, washing their hair for them. Yay, I don't, they can wash their own hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So for me, it was this very gradual process of every time my child became more independent and I had to do less for them and I could leave the house without having to organise a babysitter or ask my husband to be here. That was it. It was just it. My children set me free, really, by by growing up. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it was it was always going to happen. And I absolutely love parenting teenagers. I just think it's the best thing in the world. And this is a bit I'm going to miss when they're gone. I'm not going to miss any of that small kid stuff. I don't like small kids. They're annoying. Um, yeah. I will miss this bit of, of like, you know, rattling around a house with these incredibly interesting people with their chaotic lives. and their, How old are they now? They are 15 and about to turn 19. And, uh, yeah, they're just... So what's been the experience of having teenage daughters with their hormones yeah. and their great bodies and their... Yeah. <laughs> I've, just, I've just loved every second of it. From the moment they sort of transitioned from these kind of oh, they're really awkward teenagers they're the worst teenagers are the worst and from the minute they blossomed out of the teenage years and so into the teenage about years about 13 14 and they actually you know they physically match what's going on in their heads uh, you can have a proper conversation with them i mean it's such a sort of cliche isn't it that the fact that particularly if you have your children a little later as we do these days, that you are going through menopause at the same time as your daughters are going through puberty and then there's going to be this awful clash of hormones in the house and that poor husband would probably want to move out because all the fireworks are going to be going off left, right and centre. It just wasn't like that. It just wasn't like that. I met a woman at a party many years ago when my girls were tiny and she told me she had four teenage daughters in the house. And I said, oh my God, you know, the classic reaction, that must be awful. She said, you know what, it really isn't awful. She said, the secret to living with teenage girls is to um, let them do whatever they want and be nice to them all the time. And (laughs) I seriously, that is what I've done with my girls. I've given them ultimate freedom to go off and make mistakes and be dreadful and do, you know, whatever it is that they want to do, knowing that they have this incredibly functional, solid, loving, nurturing home to come back to. And it doesn't matter how they're talking to me, I will talk to them nicely. I don't raise my voice to them. I tell them I love them the whole time. I just, I, I'm just this sort of big, soft, absorbent cushion um, <laughs> in their in their world. Um, and it doesn't for a minute suggest that my girls are perfect for any, not, not for even a second, but it does mean that home life is really nice. It's really harmonious. They really appreciate me and they appreciate being at home and they like being here and they're not forever trying to sort of get out of this hellhole. So it worked. It worked for the woman I met at the party many years ago. <laughs> And it's working for me. So we've sort of avoided this awful clash of the older woman and the teenage girl that can happen. Um, and I think we're through the sort of the, the worst possible 
uh, points in the in the process now. So I think if it hasn't happened now, it won't happen. I think pretty sure anyway. Yeah, it's been good. The fifteen and nineteen. Yeah, then. yeah. It's been good. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm still enjoying it. And I'm really enjoying watching how they evolve um, with this incredibly, I think, slightly controversial parenting that I've yeah. <laughs> I've given them. Um, which, with the older girls, certainly uh, it appears to be paying dividends because she's just gone from being the ultimate pain in the backside <laughs> to being just this awesome, glorious, sort of slightly ethereal girl who. Um, is just incredible company and goes out in the world and is nice to people and does good things and oh, wow. spends her time in interesting ways and uh, yeah so we shall see that's but, really interesting isn't yeah, it yeah I, I may be able to listen, listen to this back in 10 years time and think yeah. what a fool <laughs> sort of like, my, both my children have gone completely off the rails at the age of 30 but yeah. we'll go back to the book in a minute but where were you menopausally okay so i am currently 53 i'm about to turn 54 um you're a july baby too aren't you i'm a july baby yes and um yeah so i felt very very non-perimenopausal for most of my 40s even into my late 40s i would feel very much like i could get pregnant and have a baby I just very much felt like my body hadn't changed and my my reproductive system was still operating in the same way and I was still full of the same hormones and chemicals and what have you. And then I would say I didn't get any of the sort of classic menopausal symptoms. I didn't get hot flashes or brain fog or bad temps or, or sleeplessness. I didn't get the insomnia. Oh, God, you're Jamie. But what I did get, and I'm kind of really grateful that it happened this way because it sent me to the hormone doctor nice because what actually happened to me was really like sort of scary and awful. Um, so I would have probably just soldiered on with my hot flashes and my, yeah. you know, um, but... And this is uh, a very common symptom of, of menopause, but people don't really talk about it very much, is I started getting um, very irregular heart beats oh. and dizziness. Dizziness off the scale, particularly in the morning. So I'd get out of bed in the morning and the whole room would be spinning around my head. I'd have to hold onto the wall coming down the stairs on a really rocky boat. And that was happening every morning. Um, and I was getting these irregular heartbeats. Um, the whole time and then the one that actually tipped me over the edge was one that went on for an hour and I thought I was going to have to call an ambulance oh my God, scary. and it wasn't a panic attack I've had panic attacks and I know the difference between a panic attack and what was happening to me um, it was purely physical and yes I just managed to sort of pull it back from the point at which I was going to call an ambulance to take me to the hospital because I thought I was dying um, oh <laughs> and nice. I had a friend who'd just been to a private hormone doctor on Harley Street of course so I went to see her. Um, so why did you go to her and not the doctor? Oh, good question. Good question. I think because I could afford to. And because at that point, this was like three years ago, even three years ago, it just felt like less of something that you should bother your doctor with. But how did you know that it was to do with your hormones? Oh, because I Googled it. Oh, of course. Yes. Dr. Google told you. Yes, Dr. Google said this is a... This a fairly, a... you know, not well known but common symptom yeah. of of of, um, of menopause. Um, so I went to this lovely lady in Harley Street, and she prescribed me um, patches. 
and she also prescribed me very interesting i don't know if you've come upon this um with anybody else you've spoken to about this testosterone yeah yes. so it's people starting to talk about that mm. much more i mean it's still practically impossible to get on the nhs but oh yeah you have to yeah. pay for it yeah. but you know it's like it's 100 quid for a canister but the canister lasts you for six months yeah so. but <laughs> interesting tip that's the women's one Yes, the women's one. So if one. you get the men's one, yeah. and don't just use smaller quantities, oh. cost you about fourteen quid. How fucking typical is that? Oh, you're kidding me! I only know. Where do you Where do you get it from? You just get them to prescribe it to you. I only know this because I was literally prescribed it yesterday and told oh. that by my doctor, my gynaecologist. Why is the lady one so expensive? Because it's pink. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't know if it's pink, but you oh, know no, what I mean. And it's much big. It's bigger quantities because obviously need bigger quantities. So you are, you have to regulate it yourself. Which right. Is the difference. Yes. But it's literally a tenth of the price. Oh, that's very interesting. And yeah, really, really helpful. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, I would very much advocate for the use of testosterone in menopausal women. It is very... Really, was that? So you had the so the estrogen patch, So the estrogen patches, which I went and collected from the pharmacy the, the minute I left her, her clinic and slapped one on, and within 24 hours, the dizziness had gone, and so had the heart, the irregular heartbeats had gone as well. It was instantaneous. It was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and the testosterone... I would say because of course all these hormones work in conjunction with your own hormones yeah so there are times when some of the symptoms come back a bit because clearly the estrogen in the patches was enough to counterbalance whatever it was that was causing my palpitations and dizziness because I'm still making estrogen but if I go through a phase where my body's making much less estrogen than it usually does the patch doesn't quite um, make up for that shortfall and then I can get little dizzy patches but I know it'll all be over in a week once my estrogen my natural estrogen levels pop up again 
Um, and it's the same with the testosterone. You know, women, women, women's testosterone production peaks at 25 and then starts going downhill. So this is what I tell my daughters. It's like, you're actually, you know, that's when you're at your most sort of kind of shag obsessed sex obsessed as a woman this is why teenagers shouldn't be having sex because then the teenage girls are not making any testosterone which means that they're not actually having any fun or wanting to do it because they don't actually have sex drive um teenage girls i'm sure there are teenage girls out there who would disagree um but so the testosterone builds up in young women so by the time they're my older daughter's age they're starting to have, yeah. appreciate it yes probably starting to be a little bit more sort of proactive in a I'm feeling horny I really would like to have sex now um, rather than oh yeah maybe if I sleep with him then uh, x y or z might happen um, and then it and then it falls off a little bit after the age of 25 so basically God's design is that you should be shagging between the ages of 20 and 25 and having your babies then having your babies and yeah then, and then you can just pop off <laughs> and then yeah exactly yeah um but you do still make testosterone as a woman, even in, even, even at our age. <laughs> um, and I think what happened when I started taking testosterone is that I was, for some reason, I had quite a lot in my system. And I had this sort of testosterone overdose, I would say, which was very, very, very dramatic. And I didn't, I, I, I keep thinking I'd like to write a piece for Medium about it or something, about how it felt. It was about two weeks where I was just off my tits on testosterone. You can um, write a guest piece for the shift yes. if you like. And I just thought, oh my God, I think I know what it feels like to be a man. I was just, my eyes were on stalks everywhere I was going. I was looking at young men, um, <laughs> probably looking at them in a really creepy way that would have made them feel uncomfortable if they'd seen me. I was thinking about sex all the time. Um, I was, yeah, just... So that was how your own testosterone production was combined yes with, with this newly introduced testosterone from the tube that um it's like a gel and you rub it onto your skin um yeah so for two weeks i thought oh my god this is this is crazy this is absolutely this is what it must be like to be a man how awful no wonder they are just they always, <laughs> how they are how they are oh. <laughs> um and i did wonder if i would stick with it if that's what the rest of my life was going to be like but Whatever happened, it, it it faded away, and now it's just this very sort of neutral thing. And I put it on twice a week, and what it is actually supposed to do, rather than giving you the horn and making you stare in, a, in an unsettling way at young men, um, <laughs> is it's um it's just supposed to um, maintain your focus, and it's that brain fog thing. It's supposed mm. to counteract the sort of brain fog and keep you sharp and keep you on point and what have you. And I certainly don't feel like. Um, I've been suffering from any sort of brain fog or no, and that's and that brain fog thing is a is a, pa- a complete pain. I mean, mine's not too bad now, but it, it used to be really, really yes. bad. My gynecologist said to me yesterday, actually, they said that one of the reasons she uses it is to do with strength. Yes, that's and another muscle oh, strength. Of course, yeah. muscles as well. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because... And that you know, watch when you start to see people get spindly little legs. Yes. <laughs> The little old lady legs. Oh. <laughs> yes, it's for all sorts of things. It is for all sorts of things. Um, and I haven't tried not using it, so I don't know if I would notice any differences if I stopped using it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I do still, because I don't know if I'm assuming it's because I use the oestrogen patches, I do still have a monthly period of, of sorts. 
um, but sort of very kind of old lady periods, I would say. Good, I haven't um, had a period for years. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Although the, the flip side to not having a period is not ovulating, and I've always enjoyed ovulation. There's always. How did you know? Um, oh, do you, I just feel more um, sort of zingy and alive and sort of oh, really? more crowned kind of feeling a little bit more plugged into the world and more aware of men and certain oh, so different energies. You had very proactive ovaries, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. So I've, I've always enjoyed ovulation, particularly since... Um, I stopped being a young woman and stopped making testosterone. Um, I've always enjoyed that sort of four or five days every month where I felt a bit more like, hey, <laughs> let's get out there. That is so interesting. When I was at the gynecologist yesterday, she was like, oh, let's have a little look in there. Like, here we go. <laughs> and um, it's the same gynecologist who, who I love and consider a complete lifesaver, but did once give me an ultrasound and then and say to me, when we were considering whether or not I needed a hysterectomy because I had endometriosis and adenomyosis and God knows what else. And she went in and she was like, oh no, there's no, no need, you're almost out of eggs. Oh. So God love her, like I was a fridge. She is the most amazing it. woman and I'm conscious she might listen to this at some point. But yesterday she did say to me, yeah, and your, your left ovary is... And I was like, the word you're looking for is withering, isn't it? Oh. She was like, I was trying to avoid that word. <laughs> I was like, it's okay, I know they're not doing it anymore, but the, there was the evidence on the ultrasound, I could see yes. that it was the shrinking. With, your withered ovary. It was literally, yes. it was packed. As it its function off. declined it's, and its, so and it's, it's use. It's done here, yeah. there's no need. Yes, bye. It's like, you know, um, I guess, like on a tree when you get those like seed pods that yes. eventually wither and chop. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it's going to drop off. I don't think it'll drop off, but yes. Like, oh, bless. Yeah, you don't, bless your <laughs> you don't come to this podcast for gynecological accuracy. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yes, I feel like I've had quite an interesting menopausal journey. Yeah, and a bit different as a well. A bit different, absolutely. I like that, a little yeah. bit different. Yes, yeah. I mean, it could still. I know a friend who went through the whole of perimenopause without a hot flash and then reached menopause, as in hadn't had a period for a year, and then started getting hot flashes after her. Oh, that's yeah. different. So that's I'm, I'm not out of the woods yet, but I feel like if this is it, if this is going to happen in the next year or so, I'm going to stop having periods and, and actually go into menopause, then... It's been okay, really. Yeah. It's been okay. It worse. Yeah. Apart from the I scary I'm dying palpitations. Oh, the bit where I thought I was going to die, yes, that was, that was a low. But yeah. I'm really interested in the way that once a lot of women, not all women, get into their late 40s or early 50s, it completely also changes their approach to work and what they're doing. They might get more driven or get more fuck you yeah. or, you know, just like, oh, that's not do that anymore I want to do that how if at all does that fit in with what's happened in your work because you have gone stratospheric in the last six years so that's the thing and it's a chicken and egg thing because I have no idea if the reason why my recent work has been so successful and my career has just lit up like a sort of a golden sun suddenly is because of my age or if the fact that I am going through this amazing golden time and everything is, is you know, I'm, I'm in this period of great success is making it so much easier to deal with the fact that I'm getting older and 
um, things are changing and what have you. And I don't know. I don't know if I'd be struggling more with things and feeling less confident because I feel incredibly confident yeah. at the moment. And physically as well, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing great going on with me physically. I don't, I've got, I've got nothing to be excited about. I haven't been to the gym for six years. I don't do any exercise. I'm not fit underneath this, you know, this nice outfit I'm wearing is just, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> um, but I don't care. I don't yeah. care. I genuinely don't give a shit. And sometimes my daughter will look at me in disgust and say, oh, I don't ever want to get old if I'm, like, standing there in my underwear. Oh, um, thanks. I don't care, though. I just, like, enjoy your beautiful body. Enjoy. And I really hope that by the time you're 54 and it's all droopy and stuff, that you feel as happy about it as I do because I just don't care. I just want to wake up every morning... I want to have a nice day. I want to enjoy being with my family. I want to take my dog for a lovely walk. I want to get some work done. I want to get on top of my emails and then go to bed again. And I don't care what my bum looks like or <laughs> the fact that my jowls have started drooping or that I just don't I'm care. I'm scrutinising and I can't mm. see any jowls. No, they're little, no, it is a bit jowly. But I, I feel like I should care, but I don't. I'm just too happy with the way things are in my life at the moment. I'm so happy living with my teenage girls. I'm so happy with the way my career is going um, and the work that I'm doing and the... Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. So I don't know if I'm a bad person to talk to because... No, But for all of this... And this is... I mean, I just think it's awesome that you can, as a middle-aged woman, suddenly hit a golden seam at the age of whatever I was when this all started really taking off I guess 49 which was the first one that really then she was gone gone. that was the thing I remember there was this moment six now must be five or six years ago I was sitting in the um, Cafe Nero on the Finchie Road writing one afternoon and the galleys of then she was gone had just gone out on Net Galley which is a reviewer early reviewer website where you can get early PDFs of books and then you leave a leave a review. And the first review dropped and I had that sort of sick feeling in my stomach because it was such a crazy book. Um, and I'd never had a customer review like it. It, was, it didn't bear any reflection to any Amazon review or Goodreads review or newspaper review or anything I'd ever had for any of my books before. This woman was just... She, she was just in this complete state of shock and awe and emotion and crying and all of the, all of the above. Um, and I just felt like, oh my God, I've written this book and it seems to have completely um, had this sort of transformative effect on this reader. And that was the moment. I honestly, if I think back to from writing the, the, writing the lovely books I was writing, everybody's saying, oh, you've written a lovely book. Oh, it's sold X amount of copies. Write us another lovely book. And feeling like I was in this sort of like, you know, here goes another year, write another book, sells the same amount of copies as the last one. All lovely, everybody likes me, everybody's happy. Um, but maybe I'm never going to write my breakout book. Maybe I'm never going to write the book that sort of, you know, changes changes everything up a gear. And so maybe you had, you'd had your book. Had my book, precisely. Precisely. I, I thought, I've had my book and a lot of people don't get that. And I was lucky to have that. And that was amazing. That was magical. And I look back at it with stars in my eyes just thinking about it. But exactly, I didn't think. I thought I'd run out of chances to have that happen again. You know, and then I read that review and I thought, oh, okay, this could be different. This could be something really different. And so it was. 
and yeah then she was gone just yeah went on the Richard and Judy list it sold really well I'd never cracked the top five before and I think that went in at number three for anyway it was uh, it was incredible but um the amazing thing with that book was it cracked america for me yeah i mean yeah. that's the and now you like top the bestseller list there too don't you only with that book and really? perception is very interesting once you've been number one in the new york times bestsellers people just assume that all your books and uh, yeah. uh, but no it was only that book no other book has ever done in my head it's the do. family upstairs that's the big success that was huge here um, it was quite big in America. I think it spent a couple of weeks in the top ten um, and then slipped out again. Um, but it was massive here and it sold. It was it was like one of the big lockdown hits. Um, it sold massive mm. amounts during the first lockdown. And, yeah, so that was it. And then it's just been this incredible sort of, like, slow march over the next few years up this lovely, sunshiny hill just sort of with every book thinking, okay, that was fun, but can I can this be maintained? Is this all going to go back down to the bottom of the hill again? But it just seems to keep building and just to be at my age and to be building a readership of brand new, fresh, shiny readers and young readers as well. Um, and to be, yeah, to be perceived, to use the word of, of the, the parlance of the young, to be relevant. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> to be relevant, suddenly relevant in my 50s um, is just not something I would have ever expected and is absolutely extraordinary. And I'm so grateful and so delighted. I kind of don't want it to go on for too long, though. I've got this lovely sort of feeling about the other side of the hill now where I can just sort of like very, very slowly trot off the other side of the hill and start writing books that aren't quite so um uh sort of ma- massive publishing deal every time because it really takes it out of you i mean you know you've spoken to enough writers and you've been through it yourself how much work is involved in promoting a, a, yeah, a book it almost becomes bigger than writing the book exactly especially when you're big internationally yes you are oh absolutely absolutely um yes so it's happening on both sides of the pond um the same amount of work so yeah but this has been glorious and I'd like to keep this up for another two or three books and then just slowly start to yeah kind of become more of a older lady writer I don't know yeah it's going to enter your fourth your fourth my fourth stage fourth stage being being Anita Bruckner or somebody exactly (laughs) exactly that's the plan anyway (laughs) before I ask you the questions I always ask at the end You've got to tell me about the 5-2 diet. Oh, okay. I've always been fascinated yeah. by the 5-2 diet, yeah. but I've got no discipline, so... And we, I know we don't say the word diet, but, you know, yeah, five two the eating five plan. Yeah, 5-2 eating plan. Let's call yeah. it that. Let's call it that. So, yeah, I used to go to the gym a lot, and then I stopped, and um, and I didn't want to go back. I just thought, I'm, that's it. I'm was done. that an age thing? <sighs> it was It was just big, It was habitual going to the gym. I never enjoyed it. I didn't like the people there. I hated everything about it, but I did it. Um, and then there was one summer where I couldn't get, I, I don't know, the children were at that age where I couldn't leave them and, but I couldn't put them anywhere. And I just thought I've got, and I had to write a book and I just thought something's got to give and it'll be the gym. And come the end of the summer when they went back to school, I was just like, I don't want to go there. I don't ever want to go there again. I'm done. So I don't know if it was age. It was just like, I broke the habit and I just, I just thought no. And it's two hours out of my day that I've got back two hours out of my day every day that I've got back for myself but of course my body was used to me burning a certain amount of calories and then it stopped and I started putting on a bit of weight and, and um, muscle I guess 
and lost, lost, lost muscle. And I just thought I want to do something. I hate calorie counting. I hate not being able to eat whatever I want to eat. I want to have chocolate in the house. I want to eat biscuits. I want to drink beer. I want to go and have a curry on a Friday night and not think twice about it. I don't want to have a restricted diet. That's just... I couldn't, I couldn't live like that. Um, and so I thought I'd try it, the 5-2, and uh, it just stuck. It just stuck. I just find it so easy. I'm on a fast day today and my stomach is rumbling while I'm talking to you. It's no, just empty and growling. So I'll just have a can of Diet Coke or something. Um, so how does just, that work? You do five days where you eat what you want? You can't eat... You can't, well, my husband, right, my husband does it as well and he eats whatever he wants on his non-fast days, but he's very muscly, so he burns fat more easily than I do uh, he's much more efficient me- metabolically speaking than I am so he can do that but actually the, the 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 way you're supposed to do it is on your fast days you don't eat more than 500 calories and on your non-fast days you work out using a calculator what your daily calorific um, output is based on your age and your level of exercise and what have you and uh, you eat that so I burn apparently 1560 calories a day yeah yeah. and that's what i should eat i shouldn't eat any less because you don't want to rob your body of calories um more than twice a week because then it goes into that mode of um storing up the fat because it thinks that there's Mm. a a drought and uh, what have you so i do try and stick to sort of 1500 calories a day apart from at the weekends where that's still not very much it's just fine though it is genuinely fine and this is something like once i decoupled myself from my husband's eating we don't eat together ever unless we're in a restaurant. Once I decoupled myself from him, That's it's just so easy. And I eat at five. I don't want to eat at eight o'clock. I don't want to go to bed with a, a stomach. I wonder if that rumble will have made it to your microphone. It doesn't matter if it has. I don't want to go to bed with a stomach full of food. I want to have digested it by the time I get into bed. So, yeah, so that, I find it really easy. 500 calories for breakfast, 500 calories for lunch, 500 calories for dinner. If I go out, then sod it. I'll <laughs> just eat whatever, yeah. eat and drink whatever I want. But yeah, I don't find it. It, it. It just works for me. And if it means I don't have to go to the gym ever again, as long as I live, then yeah, then I point. love it. <laughs> good point. Right. Questions I always ask. What's your emotional age? Oh, that's a really good question. I think I'm emotionally incredibly mature. So I'm going to say my emotional age is 53. You're looking at me, I can't tell whether no, you're thinking no, she's no. deluding herself no, if she no, thinks that. No, I'm not at all. It's, I'm just, I love this question so much, it's so fascinating. Do you get completely different answers completely every different time? Answers, um, Do you ever get people saying they're emotionally 16? Often. Oh, really? Often. Wow. And it's not always people with unresolved trauma either, yeah. although it is often people with unresolved yeah. trauma. I feel very much my, my yeah. age, yes. age as well. I feel every year of my life I've grown a little bit wiser and a little bit calmer and a little bit more sensible and a little bit more measured and a little bit able to deal with everything that life throws at me. Cool. Uh, give us a book recommendation. So it can be one of those, you know, this is my Desert Island book, or it can be, I've just read this book and it's great. Okay, I am going to give you a Desert Island book which is the Stopped Heart by Julie Myerson. Is that the ghosty one? Yes, it's. have you read it? I have read it, yeah. Oh. But go on. So no. it's about this couple who've experienced the most unbelievable trauma, which is not laid out until quite late in the book. Um, and they escape London and they move into this cottage in Suffolk, I think it is, um, in order to recover and grieve. Um, and then there's a backstory of um, a family a hundred years earlier also living in the same cottage in Suffolk and they're a very poor 
family I've got loads and loads of children like dirty feet dirty hands the, the, the teenagers look after the babies um, there's animals wandering around the house and one night a man with red hair appears in the middle of a thunderstorm on their doorstep the family invite him in to live with them and from the minute he walks in through the front door of that cottage everything is dark and twisted and yeah really really you're saying it with such relish oh as it's well. so good <laughs> what advice would you give younger women oh I think something that's always helped me in life and more so now than ever is not being an overthinker but how can you tell someone not to be an overthinker when they're an overthinker and youth is just supremely designed to cause massive amounts of overthinking but if you can just get through life and just make decisions quite quickly and and trust your instincts that's massively important to just trust your instincts the one time I overrode my own instincts I ended up married to the wrong man for five years because I didn't listen to my instincts. So if your inner voice is telling you not to do something, that somebody's a bad person or there are red flags up, yeah, just trust your instincts, I think, because they're usually right. On the subject of that relationship, Mm. I also had a similar relationship to that when I was younger than you and didn't marry him, luckily. He was coercive controlling, wasn't he? Yes, he he was coercive controller, yeah. How has that impacted you, do you think? I, yeah... Um, there were just so many things that happened in the five years that I was with him that when I finally got out the other side and through the door and back out into the real world away from this prison I just thought I now know what I'm never going to do again I'm never going to put somebody else's feelings above mine I'm never going to worry about you know I'm I'm never going to let myself believe that I'm the only thing that stands between another human being and oblivion I'm never going to be a people pleaser I think I stopped being a people pleaser because of being a people pleaser that got me into that relationship in the first place and kept me there for so long. I went straight from that marriage into my relationship with Yasha, my husband, and I was a completely different person when I went into that relationship with Yasha to the person who'd gone into the relationship five years earlier with my first husband because it was just like, I'd just drawn lines in my life, just that that's never happening again, I'm never going to be like that again, I'm never going to behave this way again or allow this to happen again. Um, So it was instantaneous from the minute I walked out of that marriage and I've taken those lessons with me um, and stuck with them. And yeah, I'm always going to trust my own instincts Mm. in the future. And the minute I saw that guy the first time, I just thought, no, no, you're not right for me. And I overrode every single instinct I had about him until I found myself trapped in a house with him five years later. So, Was that because you were flattered? way I, I yeah in a way I just <laughs> I got to that point in my you know I was, I'd been in a, in a two-year relationship and I was ready to settle down at 20 I was done I was ready to settle down and then that relationship ended and then I was just desperate to find someone to settle down with but of course you know 20 years old in London on the clubbing scene <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't have that sort of social life that led me to meeting you know, pools of of lovely young men who wanted to settle down too and it was the fact that he was just absolutely up for it and putting an engagement ring on my finger um, and wanting to eschew everything else out there all the other worldly freedoms of being a young person in London no let's not do any of those things let's just just settle down you and I and get a nice little house in the suburbs and yeah so he gave me exactly what I wanted but I found that I didn't actually want that at all. Yeah. yeah. So interesting, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. So interesting, those 
things that you can now see that are red flags that yes. at the time there wasn't so that, that term didn't exist red flags no. didn't exist as a term coercive no. control didn't exist no. as a term um, and it, it certainly wasn't been illegal no no <laughs> um, but yes yeah, so I didn't actually kind of understand what I was walking into and uh, until it was way too late and uh, yeah it was horrible it was a really, really horrible five years. But it's given me plenty to write about. Yeah, it it's has given you me do lots write about of, it quite yeah, a lot. I do don't write you? about coercive control quite a lot in, in all sorts of different relationships, um, not just romantic relationships and marriages. But yes, it's something I keep returning to because it's a fascinating concept that someone can make you stay when you don't want to stay and you're not tied down to a chair with a piece of rope. You're literally free to leave anytime you yeah, like and you don't. Tried by tied by kids or yes. yeah. it's just yeah. a sheer force of will thing. Yeah. Yes. And you're not necessarily a person who doesn't have your own will. Yeah. You know, you're not pushover. No. I was uh, exactly. Pushover. That's what's so bizarre about it. You assume that anybody who lets themselves be dragged into a situation like that must be fundamentally weak. And well, I think at that point when you were going through it and for me as well earlier, that was the thought. That was Yeah the social yes. understanding around that it's like why did you stay yeah. Just like, yeah but you know now if people say that it's a bit like wake up smell the coffee exactly it's people, like people have people recognize yeah it's, it's been like, a storyline in so many sort of popular radio shows tv shows films and what yeah. have you um and it's always in the in the papers and it is a crime we now know it's a crime as well um that people are much more understanding when when it's not i was going to say women find themselves in that situation it's not just women no, who find themselves people. in that situation but people yes yeah yeah it's really interesting who's your old bird role model do you know, I was, who was I thinking about the other day? And I was thinking, that is life goals, right there. I want to be that person. And when you say old bird, you mean like... Just years. older than you. It older than really me. doesn't really matter how old. Oh my God, who was it that I was thinking of? Oh, I don't know, I just see, I see women all the time who I just find inspiring and awesome and think that's the direction I'd like to be going off in. I'd like to look like that, I'd like to act like that, I'd like to have that amount of energy, that amount of positivity. And I can't think of any of them now that you've put me on the spot. Oh, well, if it comes back to you yeah. in the next couple of minutes. If it comes back to me in the next couple of minutes, I will throw it at you. What's your superpower? I think staying calm, I think. Just staying calm and being grounded and still and solid. All of those things. They don't sound like very superpowers, but they feel very, very important, particularly at sort of this stage of life where teenage children getting older and uh, my career being quite demanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I think, yeah, stillness. Like a still, strong core. Exactly. And how many fucks do you give? Oh, none. None of any description. Not not a solitary one. No, no. And isn't it marvellous? Yeah. Like, honestly. And, and nothing winds me up more than seeing people giving too many fucks as well. I just want to go up to them and just say, just drop the fucks. You don't need them. Just... <laughs> any old bird role model come to you? <sighs> oh, God. Oh, that's very frustrating. I'm so terrible at thinking of things on the spur of the moment. Well, I'm amazed I managed to think of a book. Um, no, I'm no, sorry. Don't worry. No, I'm no sorry. Worries. That's, That's really, brilliant. really thank hopeless you. of me. But there you go. Sorry. No, it's not hopeless <laughs> at all. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thank you for having me in your lovely living room. Oh, home. thank you for coming. Thank you for being a lovely conversationalist. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, 
please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support the shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 